pray with me, please? Jesus, thank you for your grace dispensed without restriction, forgiveness lavished upon us from the cross for our sins. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. We worship you now with our lives. We sit to hear your word so that we can follow you and love you more. Help us now, we pray, by your spirit. Amen. Um, This week, today is Palm Sunday. It begins what's known as Passion Week or Holy Week that leads up to the cross. And later today, you'll be receiving, if you're on our email list, an email from the church with about three different devotional guides you can pick from that will walk you each day through this last week with Christ. And I hope you'll snag one or two of those that'll be of value to you and walk this week with Jesus. That's what we've been doing as a church family. During the season of Lent, we've been walking with Jesus on his way to the cross. We started in the upper room. We followed him to the Garden of Gethsemane, then back into Jerusalem to that night of trials. And then we walked with him as he carried his cross to the hill known as Golgotha, the place of the skull. And now, this morning, we are there. We are atop the mount we call Calvary, and they are about, in our story, they are about to nail Jesus to the cross. You know, people are right when they remind us that the red letters in our Bibles are no more God's words than the black letters in our, in our Bibles. They are all God's good words to us, um, most sacred. But yet there is a sense when we approach this telling of the story of the cross that we're mindful we're about to encounter something truly sacred. Um, that these words about the cross are the fulfillment of all the other words. Everything before is anticipation. Everything after is proclamation of this most sacred act that happened on that hill just outside of the city of Jerusalem. And as we listen to Luke's telling of the crucifixion of our Lord, I want us to look today at three lives that Luke tells us about that were changed by what they saw on the cross as Jesus gave himself for us in love. This is how it begins in Luke chapter 23, verse 32. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with Jesus, and when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. There, it simply says, they crucified him. They crucified him. Fleming Rutledge, in her great work on the crucifixion, she describes it this way. She says, as the Romans put it, such a person was damnatio ad bestial, meaning condemned to the death of a beast. Although in our society it would be considered unacceptable to kill even an animal in such a way. We have been reminded more than once lately that it's against the Geneva Convention to display or humiliate a prisoner of war. Crucifixion, however, was purposefully designed to do just that, to display and to humiliate. The purpose of pinning the victims up like insects was to invite the gratuitous abuse of the passers-by. The passion accounts reflect in part a very ancient ritual of humiliation. 
The theological meaning of this is that crucifixion is an enactment of the worst that we are. An embodiment of the most sadistic and inhuman impulses that lie within us. The Son of God absorbed all that, drew it into himself. All the cruelty of the human race came to focus in him. There, it simply says, they crucified him. That's that's all that's said of an act that would change the world forever. In our language, it's just four words. In theirs, it's three. Professor Dale Bruner says that world history will be changed in this space. The place of the skull, gaunt picture of death, will become the place of new life. The altar of great substitution, the Passover par excellence, the ground of cosmic reconciliation. There they crucified him. On a hill called the skull, some say it's because of its shape, others because of what happened there. It was, after all, a mount of execution. And Jesus is crucified there between two criminals, likely on Barabbas' cross. Scriptures render the status of these criminals variously. They're called criminals. They're called robbers or simply others. One scholar calls them terrorists. And Luke says that one of those criminals was on Jesus' left and another on his right. And this on Jesus' left, on Jesus' right language has been used by Jesus only hours before. In Matthew 25, we hear him. He says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory... And all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. And before him will be gathered all the nations. He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me. You cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. There are two very different destinies that wait those on Jesus' left over against those on his right. And and so it is here at the cross as well as we're about to see. And Jesus is in the middle. He's central. And that is as things are supposed to be. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments, and the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And there was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. So while Jesus hangs there, naked and bloodied, bearing their shame, shamed with their shame, he pleads for them. He pleads with his father for the perpetrators of the great crime against him, the most terrible of sins. He pleads forgiveness for them. And he pleads forgiveness for us. Last week, Carson reminded us of the lyrics to an old spiritual that asked this haunting question, were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there 
when they nailed him to the cross? I suppose the song could simply be asking, were you a witness or, or do you believe? But writer and thinker Richard Newhouse hears it differently. He says, on the Sunday that begins Holy Week, when we read the passion story and we come to the part where the crowd shouts, crucify him, crucify him, that part is read by the entire congregation, for we were there. The old spiritual asks, were you there when they crucified my Lord? Yes, we answer. Yes, we were there when we crucified our Lord. Pastor C.J. Mahaney says, unless you see yourself standing there with the shrieking crowd full of hostility and hatred for the holy and innocent Lamb of God, you don't really understand the nature and depth of your sin or the necessity of the cross. So it's for us that Jesus prays, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. And we sing about this. In one of our most loved hymns, um, How Deep the Father's Love, we sing, Behold, the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there. So Jesus' prayer is for us, too. We need it to be for us, too. And it's enough for us, even for us. I mean, let's be honest. There's some pretty dark secrets in this room. Jesus has sought forgiveness for them all. It's enough. And this morning, it's important to answer the question, do you believe that Jesus can forgive you? And Jesus' first word, this word from the cross, should remove all doubt. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. It's interesting how people, the people who are nearest to the cross, how they respond. They're right there, literally in the crosshairs of this forgiveness prayer, and this is what they say. He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. The soldiers mock him coming up offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. It's interesting. Their taunts echo the very first set of temptations that were hurled at Jesus by none other than the devil himself. Go back with me to Matthew chapter 4 when the devil takes Jesus to the holy city, sets him on the pinnacle of the temple and says to him, If you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it's written, he will command his angels concerning you. If he is the Christ of God, our text says, and the language is close enough to that of the devil to send shivers up your spine. And all of this is playing out within earshot of the two criminals crucified on either side of Jesus on that same hill of death. And what we're about to do now is eavesdrop on a conversation between three men who will all be dead by the end of this day. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the cross, the Christ rather? Save us and yourself. And you hear that doubtful, accusing, devilish question once again. 
Are you not the Christ? I can only assume that this first criminal was likely crucified on Jesus' left. But these two men, these two nameless criminals, evildoers in our text, um, are nameless. But history has given them names. The first is called Gestus, and the second, Dismas. And here, Gestus asks a question that sounds like a reasonable question. Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. It would be reasonable except for that little word railed in verse 39. Railed. It's the language of unbelief. In their language, it's blasphemio. You don't have to know Greek to know what that one is, right? He blasphemed Christ. It can mean just to deride or insult when you use it towards a man, but you use it towards God and it's blasphemy. And it's sobering to think when it comes from this man's lips, a man who's about to die, that blasphemy carries a sentence of death in God's law. But the second criminal, who's named in history as Dismas, he rebukes his friend. He says the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And so in this little rebuke, we we learn a handful of things about this man that history has named Dismas. We don't learn anything about his crime or, or his life. We don't know where he's from. We don't even really know his name. But we learn what he believes here. First, he fears God. Second, he knows his condemnation is just. He knows he deserves the cross. Third, he believes Jesus does not. He believes Jesus is innocent. And you wonder, how did he come to that conclusion? Had he heard talk before he ended up here on the cross? Maybe But I imagine when you hang for six hours on the cross and watch a man next to you die, you get a pretty good sense for what he's like. You can tell a lot about a man by the way he dies, especially when he pleads forgiveness for the people who put him there. A fourth thing, he believes that Jesus is a king who by death is about to enter his kingdom. And lastly, it seems to me he really believes Jesus offers forgiveness because of what he says next. He says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Remember me. And Jesus replies to Dismas. He says, truly I say to you, today, today you will be with me in paradise. And Jesus offers paradise to this man who, by his own admission, deserves the cross. Paradise, it's garden language. It describes a beautiful garden, uh, like the Garden of Eden in Genesis, or like the garden where the tree of life is in uh, the book of Revelation. Paradise, it's where Jesus is. It's the fullness of his kingdom. It's what we mean typically when we talk about heaven. And here, Jesus is genuinely offering paradise with him in his kingdom 
to someone who self-assesses as totally unworthy, wholly undeserving. And that is exactly what grace means. Grace means you don't get what you deserve. Rather, you get what you don't deserve. Grace, undeserved favor. And Jesus dispenses it by prayer from the cross to the undeserving. And he purchased that forgiveness by his death on the cross for everyone who would trust him like Dismas, who acknowledges their complicity in Jesus' death. He's not dying for his own sins. He's dying for yours. You must trust that he can gain you forgiveness for them all for every last one of your secret and not-so-secret sins. His death in your place is enough. You must trust that even folks deserving a criminal's death, grace can be given that's greater than their sin. And so when people come to this table at the close of the service, that's a wonderful time for you to bow your head and place your trust in Jesus as the one who bore your sins for you and secure you forgiveness before a holy God. Okay. You have to wonder, while he's on that cross, what did Dismas see that made him make this plea to Jesus, believe these things about Jesus? And Luke weaves his story in and out of Jesus' great offer of forgiveness. So I'm sure witnessing Jesus love his enemies like this had to play a huge part in it. And then there was that sign nailed over Jesus' head, right? There was also an inscription, Luke writes, over him. This is the king of the Jews. And John tells us a fuller story about that sign. He says that Pilate wrote that inscription and he put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate simply answered, what I have written, I have written. So it turns out this is Pilate's sign that he put up there, and he's adamant about it. He's not going to change it. And you wonder, was he just rubbing the Jews' face in it that this convicted criminal is the best king they could come up with? Or, as he finds his nerve at last, is he also finding some faith? Does he really believe that this is the king of the Jews? One writer called this trilingual sign the gospel according to Pilate. He says, the cross speaks in tongues the moment it is planted. The gospel according to Pilate is no sooner preached than it becomes immediately missionary, reaching out to the religious world that spoke Hebrew, to the secular political world that spoke Latin, and to the intellectual commercial world that spoke Greek. The cross is international the moment Jesus mounts it. He intends world mission. It's an offer of forgiveness to the very people who nailed him to the cross, 
this trilingual declaration that he really was the king of the Jews, as Dismas watched Jesus, he seems to have pieced it together that this is who the mockers said he was, though they did not get it. He is the Christ of God, the chosen one, the king of the Jews. Dismas believed this and it gave him hope greater than death itself. And so Luke now leads us to a second witness who was transformed by witnessing the death of Jesus. In verse 44, it was now about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour while the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus called out with a loud voice saying, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said that, he breathed his last. And so there's darkness that creeps over the whole land from noon until 3 o'clock. And scientific explanations have run the gamut from an eclipse to heavy clouds. Um, but it's not what it, how it happened that matters as much as what does it represent. Perhaps the best explanation is that it reflects the darkness, reflects the judgment of God upon his son the forsakenness of the son before his father as he bears the sins of the world. Matthew presses these two ideas up against each other. He tells it this way. From the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the darkness here accompanies the judgment of God poured out upon his son in our place. Dismas saw that too. As did a man who goes by the name of Longinus. Verse 47, when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God saying, certainly this man was innocent or righteous. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle when they saw what had taken place returned home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Now Matthew and Mark record a companion statement that this centurion, this Roman soldier makes. He says, when the centurion and those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and what took place, They were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. And my simple solution to those differing accounts is that he probably said both those things. He said, this is a righteous man. He truly is the Son of God. It's interesting. As Pilate, the Roman governor, was the first to declare the truth of Jesus to the world in writing, Now you have another Gentile, this Roman soldier, who gives the first verbal proclamation of who Jesus was, a righteous man, even the Son of God. Again, what did he see, this centurion, that made him go from nailing Jesus to the cross to declaring him innocent and the Son of God? Matthew gives us a clue. He mentions there an earthquake And what took place, he says. What things did he have in mind when he says the things that took place? 
Well, these, these previous verses tell us, Behold, Matthew says, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split, and the tombs also were opened. Many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So it turns out, along with an earthquake and dark skies, the tombs are split open and people are rising from the dead. Um, it may well be that Longinus, the centurion, from that place of the skull, that hill where Jesus was being crucified, could look down into the nearby graveyard and see the tombs open up and see the people walking about. Um, he saw that. He heard the offer of forgiveness from Jesus for those who put him there, for him as one who put him there. And he heard Jesus' final cry of trust, Luke records it, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Mark points to that as the tipping point for Longinus. He says in Mark 15, when the centurion who stood facing him, facing Jesus, saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. You know, traditions vary, but some have this centurion returning to his native land, Cappadocia, which is in modern Turkey, and preaching the gospel that he'd seen with his own eyes. But since this is all we have of him in Scripture, he basically disappears from Scripture at this point after his confession of Christ as Son of God. We cannot know if that's what became of him, but it wouldn't surprise me at all if it was the case. You know, sometimes... It can feel like our sins are too great to be forgiven, even by the work of Jesus. But here, in these, in these men's lives, we see a terrorist justly sentenced to death. And it's enough for him. We see a centurion, a soldier, principally responsible for the death of Jesus, personally. And it's enough for him to you know, the Orthodox Church in America uh, holds to a tradition that this man's name was Longinus, and it means lance or spear. And they believe he was the man who took the spear and thrust it into Jesus' side. Um, and here we hear him say, truly this was the Son of God. These stories teach us there's grace enough for us all. There's grace enough for you. Luke's got one more transformed life that he wants us to see based on the death of Jesus on the cross, and his name is Joseph. He continues in verse 50, there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever been laid. And we don't know a lot about Joseph. Luke says he was a Jew, likely a member of the Sanhedrin, probably a prominent one of their high council. He was a good and righteous man. 
and he had not consented to their action to crucify Jesus. He was looking for the kingdom of God. Matthew adds a little detail. He says he was rich, which in the New Testament is not a very promising thing. Jesus himself said that rich men have more trouble getting into the kingdom of God than a camel has getting through the eye of a needle. But here we see that when it was evening, Matthew says, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph who was also a disciple of Jesus. So in spite of the barrier that wealth can be to faith, Matthew tells us Joseph was a disciple of Jesus. And if you put the accounts together, John adds this little insight. He says, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. Now, after the crucifixion, right? Listen to Mark's account. When evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And so now we have this fearful secret follower boldly going public and asking for the body of Jesus, giving up his own tomb to honor Jesus with a proper burial. So Joseph no longer follows Jesus secretly. He follows Jesus very publicly. Had it not been for Joseph, the Roman practice was often just to leave the bodies of the criminals on the cross to rot. At best, they were thrown into a mass grave. But instead, Jesus has a burial fit for the wealthy. Joseph took that body down and he wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and he laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. And he went away from all that we know of Joseph. This is the last we hear. He rolled that great stone to the entrance and he went away. One scholar says, it's as though Joseph's whole life was a preparation for this one day's work. He was the man who did one thing. He did it faithfully. He did it courageously. And Joseph's story is an example for us as well. He calls us to faithful, bold love of Jesus. I love the way the ancient writers talk about his burial in Joseph's tomb. He says Jesus was placed in another person's tomb because he died for the salvation of all other persons. And now, something amazing has happened. A camel has passed through the eye of a needle. And a rich man has become a disciple of Jesus publicly. You know, he was a member of the Sanhedrin who had voted to convict Jesus. And by his bold public identification with Jesus, he had to be drawing a line in the sand. Joseph was choosing Jesus publicly. That's what secret disciples are called to do. Right? Take a visible stand as a follower of Jesus. Joseph did it, and he had nothing to gain for it, only love to give. 
Are you a secret disciple of Jesus anywhere? At work, in your family, in your neighborhood? The cross invites you to go public with your love for Jesus and identify yourself as one of his followers. It emboldened Joseph. It should embolden us too. So Luke tells us about three lives transformed by the cross death of Jesus. And I cannot think of three more unlikely candidates for this for this situation. You've got Dismas, a criminal, a convict, justly crucified with Jesus. He finds hope hours from death. You've got Longinus, the the Roman soldier who involved in the very crucifixion of Jesus. He finds faith and confesses Jesus to be the Son of God. And then you've got Joseph, a scared, secret disciple of great wealth. And his love is emboldened to publicly stand for Jesus. There there are other stories woven into Nicodemus. You can read about him. He joins Joseph in this caring for the body of Jesus. There's a band of women who are at the cross when all the others go AWOL. And John says that there may have been other soldiers who echoed the centurion's confession that this was the Son of God, maybe the ones who were casting dice at the foot of his cross. History is full of people who've made this confession. This room is full of people who've made this confession that Jesus is the Son of God, that his death on the cross is for the forgiveness of our sins and the restoration of a right relationship with God. How about you? Would you be willing today to say, I believe that Jesus died on the cross as the very Son of God to pay for my sins and to reconcile me to God so that I might be his adopted son or daughter? Let's pray about that. Father, we pray with thankful hearts for forgiveness given to the undeserving for hope given to the dying, for love emboldened, for faith granted to persecutors. Lord, thank you. Thank you for grace that's greater than our sin. And so, though we don't understand it all, we cling to what we do. We hope in Jesus. Hear our prayers towards that end now. We ask in his great name. Amen. We want to close our time by remembering Jesus' death in the way that he told us to at this table. And um, the table at North Wake is open to anyone who's a follower of Jesus who's walking in fellowship with him. If you are willing to confess your sin and come and worship and remember Jesus, you're welcomed here. And we'll use the center aisle and the two aisles along the walls to approach the table today. Luke says something that I think helps us think about the table. It's another sign that accompanied the death of Jesus. We skipped right over it. He says, it was about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour when the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. The curtain in the temple was torn in two, Luke says. 
Author Max Lucado writes about this imagery in a way that I hope will help us think about coming to this table. Listen to what he says. He says, this curtain is the veil that hung before the Holy of Holies in the temple. The Holy of Holies, you'll remember, was a part of the temple no one could enter. Jewish worshipers could enter the outer court, but only the priest could enter the holy place, and no one except the high priest one day a year entered the Holy of Holies. No one. Why? Because the glory of God was present there. He says it's like if you were told you were free to enter the Oval Office of the White House whenever you wanted. It's okay, just go right on in. He says, multiply your disbelief to that statement by a thousand and you'll have an idea of how a Jew would feel if someone told him he could enter the Holy of Holies. No one but the high priest entered the Holy of Holies. No one. To do so meant death. Two of Aaron's sons died when they entered the Holy of Holies in order to offer sacrifices to the Lord. In no uncertain terms, the curtain declared this far and no farther. What do 1,500 years of a curtain-draped Holy of Holies communicate? Simple. God is holy, separate from us, and unapproachable. But the book of Hebrews, he says, likens the tearing of that curtain to the tearing of Christ's body. In chapter 10, he says it's as if, this, it's as if the hands of heaven had been gripping the veil, waiting for this moment. He says, keep in mind the size of the curtain. 60 feet tall, 30 foot wide. One instant it was whole, the next it was ripped in two from top to bottom. No delay, no hesitation. What did the torn curtain mean? For the Jews it meant no more barrier between them and the Holy of Holies. No more priests to go between them and God. No more animal sacrifices to atone for their sins. And for us, what did the torn curtain signify for us? We are welcome to enter into God's presence any day, any time. God has removed the barrier that separates us from him. The barrier of sin, down. He's removed the curtain. He says, but we have a tendency to put that barrier back up. Though there is no curtain in the temple, there is sometimes a curtain in our heart. Like the ticks on the clock are the mistakes of the heart, and sometimes, no, often... Oftentimes, he says, we allow these mistakes to keep us from God. Our guilty conscience becomes a curtain that separates us from God. And as a result, we hide from our master. Somewhere, sometime, somehow, you manage to get yourself tangled up in sin and you've been avoiding God. You've allowed a veil of guilt to come between you and your father. You wonder if you could ever feel close to God again. The message of the torn flesh is, you can God welcomes you. God is not avoiding you. God is not resisting you. The curtain is torn. The door is open. And God invites you in. Don't trust your conscience. Trust the cross. The blood has been spilt and the veil has been split. You are now welcome in Christ, in God's presence. And so we remember together that on the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body and it is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the meal, he took a cup and he said, this cup, it's the new covenant in my blood, which is for the forgiveness of sins. Do this also 
in remembrance of me.